Welcome, everybody. Hello. Um, my name is Sophia Gaston. Uh, I am amongst many hats. Uh, I am here at the LSE in ARENA, in the, which is a research unit based in the Institute for Global Affairs, uh, and I work alongside Peter Pomerantsev here. Uh, we are here as part of a uh, series of events which the LSE is putting on called the Shape the World series, which are being held in the run-up to the LSE Festival, which is uh, next March. It's free to attend, open to all. There will be a full program online from January, so please look out for that. So we are here because we have three wonderful speakers, all of whom have written some really, really fabulous books, and I'm going to hold them all up, and they are all, I'm not going to hold them all up at once, but uh, they will all be for sale as well afterwards with signings and so on, so please go and buy these fabulous books. So the first we have is, this is not propaganda, this is Peter Pomerantsev's new book. We also have Democracy Hacked, How Technology is Destabilizing Global Politics from Martin over here, and also Zed from Tuana, which is uh, a sort of dystopian look into a uh, near technocracy future. So what is incredible about all of these books is they cut to some of the biggest, most pressing issues of our time. So three fabulous speakers, let me introduce them. So we have to my immediate left, uh, Peter Pomerantsev, my colleague here at Arena. He's a senior fellow at the Institute for Global Affairs here at the LSE, also an author, TV producer, and media expert. <laughs> uh, he's written extensively about all of these incredibly important issues about propaganda and our elections and democracy and so on and how tech is reshaping our lives. He's also previously written a uh, book which many of you may have read called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, which was a sort of look inside how uh, Putin harnessed the media industry to his advantage in Russia. And we have uh, Joanna uh, Kavanagh, who's a British novelist. She's also an essayist and a travel writer. Uh, she's written a, a really hefty back catalogue of books, uh, The Ice Museum, Inglorious, which, which won the Orange Prize for New Writing, uh, The Birth of Love, Come to the Edge, and Field Guide to Reality. Um, but, of course, she has also just written this fabulous book, Zed. And then Martin Moore on the end. He's a senior lecturer in political communication education and director of the Center for the Study of Media, Communication, and Power at King's. Uh, before this, he was um, also in the Policy Institute at King's and uh, was previously the director of the Media Standards Trust, which was an independent charity dedicating dedicated to fostering high standards in the news media and also worked in media and communications himself before that and is the author of Democracy Hacked. So, without further ado, let's get on to things. So, uh, tonight we're going to be exploring this very particular intersection uh, between technology and the human experience uh, across a number of different levels. So we're going to look at how technology is reshaping our democracies, our public spheres, and our information environments. We're also going to look at how technology plays a role in uh, influencing our, our elections and how we go about exercising 
our democratic rights as citizens, but I think we'll also look a little bit more uh, philosophically at what the technological age actually means for our sense of self um, uh, as humans individually, but also uh, in terms of our collective experience as citizens, as communities, and as societies. So each of our panelists is going to sort of set out the central thesis of their book and any areas of particular concern that they think we should be looking at. We'll then have a little discussion amongst ourselves about how we might respond to some of these challenges and and hopefully opportunities as well. And then we'll uh, turn to the audience here and there'll be lots of time for questions and so on. So without further ado, I will hand over to who is starting us off. I think we're going to go for Martin, aren't we? Yes. And he pulled the short straw. All right. Okay. Wonderful. We'll start with Martin, please. Uh, I'll do my best to kick off, um, perhaps, because uh, my book, in a way, is, I suppose, seeks to slightly frame this debate. Um, I should explain that um, the, the, the reason I, I wrote the book, um, because it, it helps explain the thesis behind it. Um, I think, if I, if I date it back, I think it was, it was probably the beginning of March 2017, um, and... Uh, I had just um, uh, opened the uh, 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 spending records for the, for the referendum, for the, for the Brexit referendum, um, because it takes about six months for the Electoral Commission to release them. And they just released them at the end of February 2017. Um, and I was going through them, and I was, um, as I always do, just sort of looking at who was spending what on, on which companies. And, uh, and I was going through um, one of the campaigns, the, the, the Vote Leave campaign, and I kept coming across this same company, um, which I'd never heard of, um, and uh, when I totted it up, it added up to about 40% of the spending of, of vote leave during that campaign um, out of a total um, uh, allowed spending of about £7 million. Um, and I started trying to dig into who they were and what it had been spent on, and I could find out almost nothing about this company. I mean, literally nothing. They had, they had a kind of a, a front page of a website and nothing behind it. Um, and there was almost nothing else on the web. They had a Twitter account that never tweeted. It was one of those really bizarre, almost like a shell. Um, and the company was, was Aggregate IQ, um, based in uh, the west coast of, of Canada. Um, and, uh, and what it really told me, and uh, uh, it was a sign of I think my own um, uh, ignorance, um, was, was that we knew, and I knew, very, very little about how much political campaigning had changed, how much politics had changed. Um, and I was, um, became increasingly aware as I sort of looked across the world, not just in, in, in the Brexit referendum, I started to look at what was happening in elections in, in the Philippines, uh, in India, in Brazil, uh, in the US, of course, in 2016, uh, and seeing really, really similar patterns, both in terms of um, the unpredictability of them, the volatility of them, um, the way in which uh, campaigns had shifted so massively from uh, focus on sort of traditional legacy media to digital media. Um, and frankly, I, I wanted to understand it. I mean, I, th- I think, I mean, as I say, I, I, I realized that I really, I was supposed to teach this stuff and I really didn't get it myself. So the book was really um, <laughs> kind of a journey of learning for me and a journey of discovery. Um, and what I tried to do was approach it a little bit as a skeptic, to say, you know, a lot of people are saying democracy is upended. A lot of people are saying democracy has changed uh, and been tr- being transformed at the moment. Um, is it, and if so, uh, who's doing this transformation? Who's taking advantage of uh, uh, these digital tools? How are they distorting our democracy? How are they changing our democracy? 
Um, how are they able to do this? So what are the systems and structures that are enabling them to do this? And, and, and where are we going next? Um, and to do that, I, I, I tried to find um, models that I thought indicated both um, some of the kind of, I suppose, most innovative political behavior, um, which actually I found was mostly coming from people who were outside the mainstream, outside the political spectrum. In fact, one of the things I found which was most disturbing was that many of those who were having the most influence were, uh, I guess, what you'd call denialists. I mean, the people who were setting out to destroy the current system were having the greatest effect. And in a way, um, it's not that surprising because what I increasingly realized was the tools that are now available, particularly um, the platforms, um, allow uh, anyone who wants to, to, to bypass many of the, the rules and protections um, that exist in our democratic systems. And uh, those that, uh, the, some of the first people who sought to bypass those rules uh, and protections were those who, who didn't really care about them. In fact, who cared so little about them, they wanted to destroy them. So um, I, I look at um, uh, 4chan and the whole, what I call the Chan Collective, um, uh, and the alt-right and, and examine how they use new media and particularly why on earth they sought to elect Donald Trump um, and how they got involved in the 2016 campaign. Um, I try and uh, uh, look at uh, Robert Mercer, a plutocrat who spent huge amounts of money on not just on Cambridge Analytica, um, but in a whole pan up, a whole portfolio of investments to try and distort and influence the 2016 US election. And of course at, at Russia and Putin and uh, uh, what he has sought to do over the last decade or so. Um, and then try and really examine why or how they were able to do that. What, what was it about Facebook, about, about Google, about, about the, digital eco the political economy of the, um, uh, uh, the digital environment that allowed them to do what they're doing? Um, and uh, I suppose the bit, I suppose, where I perhaps uh, overlap most with, with Joanna's book uh, is, is where I try and look a bit forward and try and understand where we might be going um, because I think we are at a, a very critical juncture. I think we are at a point where we could go in any one of a number of directions and I suggest that we might go in one of three, one of which is what I call platform democracy uh, where we become increasingly reliant on the large technology platforms, so much so that actually changing your platform will probably have a more material effect on your life than, than changing your government. Um, what I call surveillance democracy, which is of course being pioneered um, by China, but we shouldn't uh, uh, think that this is only happening in China. In fact, um, uh, you, look at, you look at many other countries and the degree to which they are, uh, they, their governments uh, are investing in, in some of these um, uh, technological surveillance techniques in Singapore and India and elsewhere. Um, and then what I call democracy rehacked, which is trying to rethink uh, a kind of third way for where we might go in a more kind of optimistic direction if we, if we try and change democracy for the better. Brilliant, thank you. Joanna, do you want to sure. pick up? I've just, I've just oh, actually scrubbed out my last paragraph. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. um, so um, I was thinking a lot about um, this kind of question about being human in an age of AI, and I, I, this is obviously what we're here to discuss. And, um, and I'm going to make a few remarks about that. Um, I'm not going to follow the example of uh, a bank robber from Hamburg. Did you hear about this guy, Michael Jawanek? Um, who was recently jailed in Hamburg um, at a court, and he was asked to make a few remarks, and he then spoke for 20 hours. 
Um, at which point the judge possibly belatedly asked him to stop. Um, but while he was speaking on this very long monologue, he made one salient point, which you know you might think isn't a brilliant ratio in 20 hours. I thought I would take this point. He said, really, that he was a bank robber because he couldn't really stop being a bank robber. He tried lots of times. People had told him it was a you know, not great idea to be such a bank robber. And he would kept trying to stop, but he just couldn't because his nature was to be a bank robber. And I thought, well, actually, that's a bit like being a human in the age of AI, that the entire sort of perfectible algorithmic mathematical system sort of wants you to stop being as human, as sort of imperfectible and flawed and human as you are, but we can't, we just can't do it. So there's a kind of really interesting tension, not equating humanity with bank robbers in general, but just this kind of tension between what we're being told would be advisable and what actually happens, what, what is intrinsic to us. And so I was really interested in that, and that's kind of what I was writing about in this novel that I have written, um, which intersects a lot with what Martin and Peter are, are writing. Um, really, this kind of thing that, well, really, our reality is dystopian fiction anyway. I mean, that's kind of what we're in anyway. Um, but I wanted to write a just slightly exaggerated um, look at our massive crisis, this big tension that's going on. Um, between this friendly AI, this sort of ostensibly benign system around us. Um, you know, we see in China, and we may discuss more, how this system can be pushed into total control, total coercion, um, your social credit, your score is reduced if you spread lies about the government, with the government deciding the definition of a lie. You know, that's the ultimate um, kind of dystopian end point that we have available at the moment of this massive tech. But in our own society, where we have ostensibly a lot more freedom, there's an incredibly strange tension between being a human and having free will and desire and being unknowable to yourself and to others and being mysterious and moving in the world and having this kind of system that wants to treat you like a proposition in an algorithm, like a sort of integer, like a mathematical entity, because we're not really very mathematical. And we're not binary, we're not zero or one. We're more like qubits if we have to be a scientific metaphor. We're more like um, strange, intangible things that succumb often to decoherence. That's much more what we're like. So I thought that was really interesting. And there's one point when Martin was talking about this idea of that we're at a crux point. I agree, I think we are. Um, there's a story by Jorge Luis Borges, who's an Argentine writer, and it's called The Garden of Forking Pass. It's kind of the story of the most unreadable novel in history. I know there are lots of candidates, but this is potentially where the idea is if you're truly free, you're in this garden, there are lots and lots of forking paths, and every single time there's a fork in the path, in theory you can take any fork for all time in perpetuity. And the novel becomes unreadable because Borges's imaginary character in this imaginary novel takes all the paths, and so one minute he's dead, one minute he's alive, it's chaos. So... Obviously, in society, we have this tension. We have to not do that. We can't exist in all times. We can't have all options. We make a kind of compact. But we want to feel that we choose, that we have some kind of free will, some self-determination. And I think this kind of algorithmic reality morphs around us and moves us in ways that are to do with who's paid for our attention, 
who's paid for our vote, who's paid for our purchase. And that's a big question again of what the reality wants from us, who's deciding, and can we have free will if this reality is morphing? Um, and so that, I think that question about freedom and free will is really important. And that question about are we mathematical, well, no, so then what happens? Um, and when I was writing this novel, I thought Zed, actually, in the end, that, well, it's called Neville, Zed, Zed would indicate the things that you can't predict, the things that you can't control um, in humans, the unknowable aspects of humans. <coughs> and so this would be a category indicating uncertainty, and in the end, everything would succumb to this, because the algorithms would predict Zed if they're predicting things all the time. The more Zed there is, the more they predict it, and so the thing would become chaos. Um, the last thing... Um, I was at a conference the other day. It was an Orwell conference. It seems really interesting in terms of does, do novels matter? Probably not in the ultimate scheme of things. Um, but Orwell is, was celebrating posthumously the 70th anniversary of 1984. Um, and you might say it's very eerie and strange that that novel, which so utterly depicts the dangers of a coercive reality, is celebrating that anniversary as we kind of exist in this strange hinterland. Um, but at this conference, Carol Cadwalladder was talking, and she made an interesting point. She said, I thought truth mattered. She exposed the story you're talking about, about aggregate IQ. I thought truth mattered, but actually it didn't. And this was the terrible revelation that she injured. Fintan O'Toole also said something. He said, reality still exists. And I thought that was a really good point. I wrote it on my hands because I'd run out of paper, and then it <laughs> faded, so I don't know what that means. <laughs> uh, but I thought to, to insist on our counter-reality and our right to define reality against the reality that we're being given and coerced into accepting, I think that's quite an important thing to do as an individual. And that might be a philosophical act that we can kind of engage in as well as political actions. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. Peter? Um, one of my, actually one of my favourite characters in, in Joanna's novel is this sort of a sort of Mark Zuckerberg-like character, who's um, you know he's des he, he's designed you know he's designed these ideal algorithms and he's trying to get it to find him the ideal date and it never works because you know that's Zed and and that's wonderful. It's, it's a bit that kind of defines a new way of thinking about what is the human because the human then becomes the difference between us and the algorithm that which can't be measured by the algorithm or predicted by it that is where our idea of the human. Uh, is expressed. And, and kind of my, my, my book is a little bit about that, but while Joanna's gone forward, I go backwards. So my book is partly a family memoir, and it actually starts with the story of my father being arrested by the KGB on a beach in Odessa in 1976. Um, and, and I tell his story not, not because I'm, I want to do a sort of self-indulgent book about, uh, about my parents, but, but uh, because I use their story um, as a way, uh, as kind of a shorthand to summarize um, you know, the battles of the 20th century for what one could rather blandly call a democratic information space. And my parents were um, arrested for, for freedom of expression issues, essentially. They were handing out to their friends copies of, uh, of Nabokov. I mean, there are some literary critics who agree that's a heinous crime, but I mean, that's what they were, that's what they were hauled up for. Um, and, you know, they'd spend their nights trying to, like, you know, listen to shortwave radio, trying to get through the fog of Soviet jammers just to hear, you know, the BBC World Service in Russian. Um, you know, so much, you know, they were essentially risking their lives for you know, the right to say what they wanted, uh, the right to receive information uh, for a plural media, and a kind of a free idea of the self. My dad was also a writer, and he wrote in this very kind of impressionistic, non-Soviet prose that celebrated the individual, which is, you know, it wasn't just in the Soviet Union where, where this was 
you know, uh, a way of describing the free individual. Think about jazz or, or rock and roll. All these are kind of, you know, ways of marrying self-expression and emancipation as a way to stand up to the powerful. And in the book, I, I contrast that, those kind of like formula that we had for defining um, a democratic information space to, to today's world, where it's all been turned upside down. Um, take something as, you know, as seemingly simple as freedom of expression. Um, in the book, I go to the Philippines, for example, and uh, I cover the, sto- the stories of uh, uh, these kind of regimes that don't crush dissent by censoring, by sending around the secret police, but by sending in sort of online mobs uh, and cyber militias to destroy the reputation uh, or see doubt in any critical voices. But, you know, there's nothing illegal in that. You know? they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not doing, when they're going to death threats, that's probably like stepping into incitement to violence. But most of the time it's just like, you know, people online or what looks like people online saying, hey, you know, you're fake news. Um, and it's very hard to prove the connections between these online mobs and the government. I mean, it's a, attribution is very, very hard online. And whenever kind of critical voices say, hold on, this is the government attacking us, the government spokespeople go, well, no, it's freedom of expression. This is what you Democrats always fought for. These are concerned citizens, you know, expressing themselves online. I mean, it takes a long time to kind of like prove that actually these aren't citizens. These are sort of like troll farms. But, but by that time, the damage is done. And, you know, in some way... Uh, the regime spokespeople are right in sort of Article 19 of the Human Rights Declaration, which is the declaration in support of freedom of expression. There's nothing in there about disinformation or bots or trolls. It's just, you know, the right to say what you want. And disinformation and lying is part of that. Um, when you mentioned the Russia issue, when the Russian, when an, an affiliate organization to the Russian troll farm started to have its content taken down by Facebook, um, they kind of said, but hold on, what about our freedom of expression? And they're right in a way. There is absolutely nothing in our philosophical and legal thinking about freedom of expression uh, which says that, that these kind of campaigns are illegal. Um, so that, and that, that's a massive challenge. So you have uh, so freedom of expression being kind of hacked against the forces that have always fought for democracy. And even something as basic as pluralism, which was always meant to be a guarantee uh, of some sort of democratic debate has tipped over into hyperpolarization. I think there's something deeply specific to the way the internet is designed in that uh, you know, it creates massive fragmentation. It incentivizes not a debate, but kind of you know, behavior that tends towards the extreme. I mean, there's been quite a few studies that show that now. Um, so we have this paradox where pluralism, which is meant to be a good, uh, has tipped into hyperpolarization where debate breaks down. And it's very telling when someone, an actor like Russia, wages its campaign in the US. Uh, it's always trying to sharpen this polarization even further. And maybe even more kind of, uh, in a more kind of like, you know, insidious way, the idea of the, of the free self has been undermined. So if my father would, you know, indulge in this impressionistic writing that was sort of censored by the KGB for not being Soviet enough, nowadays, you know, any of us can be a great modernist writer on, on Facebook. It's sort of saying, go and express yourself. Um, and even in Russia, even in countries where there is certain degrees of censorship, you can say a lot more than you could during, during the 20th century. And then, as you all noted, um, you know, all your self-expression is transmuted into data. It's uh, uh, sold to political propagandists who can target you in ever more niche ways. So it's a terrible paradox. The more you express yourself, the more vulnerable you are, the less power you have, which is a complete reversal of, of kind of 
the things my parents fought for. And I think that we're also, you know, it's, it's 2019. It's the 30-year anniversary of 1989. The ideas that were celebrated and the values that were celebrated in 1989. So that's the sort of the territory my book traverses. Um, but it has a happy ending that we can, we can get to later. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. So uh, before we turn to solutions, I just want to interrogate a couple of the sort of points that we've touched upon. This point around uh, technological surveillance, so this sort of surveillance state and so on, we've been through a period where actually citizens were much more comfortable with sharing their data with corporations than they were with governments. Uh, do you see that balance starting to be redressed at all? Where do you think this is going to go? Ouch. Um... I mean, we're, we're, we're three years into the, the tech lash, um, uh, and uh, I think many people who previously were not concerned about, or not, or not outwardly concerned about the way their data was being collected and used, are now much more concerned about it. I think, understandably so. The problem, I think, it comes, comes to what Peter was saying, is this, is this we have this, this horrendous dilemma, which is the, the, the extent to which the cure could potentially be worse than the disease. I mean, in the sense that, that um, we, now that we have these behemoths that are collecting uh, everything about us all the time um, uh, for the purposes of, mostly for the purposes of advertising, although it's been um, uh, taken on by the propagandists and the political parties and the campaigners, um, uh, and we want to reduce and, and control that, you know, if, if we flip too far, the pendulum flips too far the other way, the potential of governments stepping in and, and government, governments gaining access to the same tools and the same surveillance mechanisms, it really is Orwellian. I mean, it really does take it. I mean, there's, a, <laughs> there's actually a program uh, in Singapore, I think, it's called um, E3A, which means everyone, everything, everywhere, all the time. <laughs> God. <laughs> which, <laughs> the idea is, that, is that, that, that there are sensors everywhere, that there are, you know, we all track ourselves with the phones, and, and therefore we have a safer, more secure society, a more prosperous society. Um, but you also, when it comes to, to freedoms, you have a completely, uh, essentially unfree society. So, And if you even think about GDPR, for example, so now every website we go on, we have this you know, notification, do you want to accept cookies, or do you want to spend five minutes going in adjusting your choices across a range of different abstract protocols? The vast majority of people, I suspect, because I know that even myself, I do it, still finds the convenience factor more compelling. You just say, accept all cookies. You, what does it take for us to, for that to flip? Where, where, what's the threshold? Well, I think there's been, so there's been two big things, which, I mean, both Martin and Peter have touched on. One has been the kind of, um, the sort of hacking of, almost everything, in fact, the hacking of freedom of expression, but also this kind of notion of in inevitability. If you want the tech, you have to accept the surveillance, as you're saying, really. If you want to use these services, the surveillance is intrinsic. And this idea, well, it's all part of giving you a better service, a better experience. And that's not remotely logical. Just because you have the technology to build a building, you don't have to build a panopticon. It's not the building you build. So, you know, that's been one form of you know, extremely propagandist argument, clearly. The other thing, I think, is this idea of tech exceptionalism. And this started with the big utopian ideas at the beginning of the net. The net must not be, the web mustn't be regulated, it must be free, information must be free, as Peter was saying, this idea that everybody must be able to put anything out there. And I think that's, 
if we look at kind of analogue examples, I was thinking about this the other day, if we discovered that the Royal Mail for years and years had been steaming open our letters, you know, extracting data from them, selling it to interested parties so that they could send us more targeted junk mail, you know, no catalogues for jumpers if we didn't wear jumpers, you know, that sort of thing. And if this came out, they're also sending things to insurers, potential employers, you know, health services, that whole, our government in the end. I think we'd be pretty angry and horrified and people would go to prison. It's actually illegal, of course. So this kind of, that level of um, argument has really permeated the debate and made us almost, you know, less furious, I think, than we should be. But having... Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to ask you, I mean, how much there was... Obviously, there was this kind of backlash towards Facebook with the whole Cambridge Analytica stuff, and there was all this sort of delete your account and, you know, all these hashtags trending, and there seemed to be some sort of exodus, but... How do you think it was in the end quite shallow? It's funny. So I, I, in the book, I go, to, I go to China, which sort of keeps on propping up, popping up in our conversation as kind of this sort of, you know, this idea of digital Leninism that it's being called or, or uh, sort of tech authoritarianism where all your data is sucked up to then um, kind of get you to manipulate yourself, you know, in order to, to obey the algorithms. But um, I was there and I was studying, studying friends of mine who are long-term foreign correspondents there. And they you know, they were telling me about how they'd recently talked to a, a sort of human rights activist in China. And the human rights activists, I mean, there's terrible repression now under Xi Jinping. Um, were like, don't, don't use the phone, don't use the phone. The phones are all hacked. They're like, okay, so how do we contact you? They're like, oh, yeah, just use WeChat, which is the Chinese version of, of Facebook. But it's just, and, and they're like, but hold on, but WeChat is completely, everything is monitored. They're like, yeah, but it's so convenient. <laughs> so the thing is, so I was in China very long, but like, it is amazing. WeChat, you can do everything. You get fantastic tickets. You, it's, everything is there. It's all like all your favorite apps in one place, beautifully designed, even in English. So in Chinese, it must be even better. Um, and this is a big change from, you know, the, again, from the 20th century where, you know, the authoritarian information model. It was A, kind of got rid of your rights, but it was also crap. You know, like we had much better movies and jeans and all that stuff. Um, ours was more tasty. Well, here we've got this thing, this seduction, where actually, yes, you will give up your rights, but it's going to be nicer for you in some weird way. And I do wonder how, you know, that's a much more difficult thing to struggle with. So we can actually come up with better GDPR and better rights so you know why your data is being used. We could, you know, we could get there. GDPR is a bit messy, but we could, in theory, get there. But what if it makes kind of the internet less convenient and less pleasurable? And I do wonder whether one of the big things that we've got to find again at the moment is, is the pleasure of, of the democratic impulse, which is, that's what your book is partly about. You know, what, what is it, what's that little thing that makes not being part of an algorithm exciting? And look, there are still people struggling for democracy across the world as we speak. There are protests in so many different places. So there's some sort of impulse there, and most of all in, in Hong Kong, where they're kind of saying no to digital authoritarianism. Um, but we have to find it, because I don't think it's quite embedded purely in the language of rights that we have from the 20th century. And it's also the, um, not just pleasure, but, but need. I mean, the, um, the, uh, I was struck last week by the news that um, Google's buying Fitbit. Um, particularly because I was reading your book, and it was making me think of the Beatle Band, which is the band that everyone wears. Now, I know the Fitbit isn't the Beatle Band yet, um, but, I mean, Google is trying to catch up with Apple, whose, whose watch is already um, uh, measuring our health and um, keeping track of our, our heart rates, etc., um, and, and linked up to insurance companies, um, uh, such that 
Now, in many companies in the States, if you want health insurance, then you're obligated to wear uh, an Apple iWatch or presumably now a Fitbit. Um, and that has implications for your, um, uh, if, you, if you don't stay fit enough and you don't have the right diet, then that has implications for, for how you, um, for, your, for your premiums and whether you're allowed to stay on the healthcare plan. So, I mean, the integration of, of these services with, with, with other more public services and more, um, uh, and similarly in India with, uh, with, with Ardha, this, this remarkable um, system. Does everyone know Ardha? I don't. So every India, well, 1.2 billion of them, I think that's pretty much all, all Indians, um, uh, from the age of five, I think, or maybe it's from birth now, from the age of five, is given a 12-digit um, number, uh, and it's coordinated with uh, an iris scan and fingerprints. Um, so they each have an individual biometric identity. Um, and they are, government services are now not available if you don't provide your Aadhaar number. For quite a while, it was being connected to all the commercial services too. So you, you couldn't um, get Amazon deliveries unless you provide your Aadhaar number. You couldn't get, so, so essentially, um, uh, and, and it was done again, this, is, this was done originally at least for um, the purpose of trying to give a lot of people who didn't have access to banking, who didn't have access to welfare schemes, access to those schemes because they, they were outside the system. Um, but of course, as soon as you create um, a, a single uh, biometric identity for every person in the nation, then the potential of using that uh, and the potential of abusing that uh, is enormous. I think that's where the fun thing comes in as well. Actually, some, you know, as with Brave New World, things can be incredibly fun for a very long time and then it can switch, as you're saying, and it can suddenly become something you can't remove yourself from. And I think, again, when we talk about crux points... You know, it's very difficult to know when you're in a crux point. And actually, again, that's Orwell's argument. He says, do you know when your society's become completely totalitarian? Because you're sort of in it. You know, are you aware? Are you even permitted to have that awareness by the society? And that's not to equate our society with Orwell's in that respect. That would be too sort of evident and crass in a way. But that sort of sense, you know, that when does the fun become compulsory? We all have to have fun every day in this way whether we like it or not, because otherwise we don't have readings, we can't be verified users, we can't have you know, access to other things like bank accounts, mortgages, and that becomes something that appears to be voluntary but sort of isn't anymore because we want a decent quality of life. Well, actually, some of the most vocal critics I saw to uh, the purchasing of, of Fit, Fitbit were, were actually women speaking out. Obviously, there's a sort of consciousness about a lot of countries where there's sort of this dual problem of democratic backsliding and fertility decline where boosting women's fertility has actually become sort of an area of national policy making and you have these uh, you know, apps and so on monitoring women's menstrual strike cycles and there is a concern about that starting to become an area that government can uh, monitor and, and uh, interfere in. Well, your employer, you know, you're going for a job interview, your employer knows whether you're fertile or not. As a woman, that's a huge issue within the workplace, whether you're being discriminated against on the basis you might have a baby. So that becomes something, you know, the employer knows whether this is possible. Do you think, I mean, there are, if you read a lot of conversations about this, this sort of point that we're at with AI and these sort of terrifying dystopian visions of, of what could happen and and there is a sense that there are some sort of parallels with some of the conversations that were taking place 
you know, even around um, sequencing the DNA and genome editing and IVF and so on. And always with those conversations, you know, society and humans progressed and they decided what they did and didn't want to harness within an ethical dimension. And I'm always struck that there was always this very strong sort of religious uh, voice in play there, sort of cautioning against the, many of those sorts of advances and, and imposing this kind of ethical framework. Is there just an absence of an ethical framework around our AI debate? Is that playing a role in how things are progressing? I, mean, I, I don't want to take away from, from ethics necessarily, but I mean, if, if you look at something like, um, uh, which I kind of my focus, which is journalism and news uh, and political information. Um, there's a, absolutely there's a, there's an absence of um, uh, understanding of norms. Um, so we talk endlessly about the kind of democratic deficit in news. But then when you say to someone, so how much news does someone need, or what's sufficient news, and what should be provided, and how many reporters should we have reporting from local courts and local uh, uh, councils and whatever else? Suddenly you realise there's a vacuum. There's there's you know that hasn't. No one suggested anything. No one said, this is, this is the minimum we need because we took it for granted for so long in the 20th century because it just, that, there was a model that worked. I mean, an economic model that worked. And that model is now broken. Um, and so it's a question of, can we, can we invent those or can we come up with those? Can we define those? Uh, and if we do, what, you know, who does that? Yeah. I think we're also hoping at the moment the kind of sense is that, you know, because the tech utopians were so friendly and fun and they had, you know, they wore hooded tops and they put beer on their computers and, you know, they, they, we've seen the social network and it was all great fun again. And, you know, and we're sort of, I think the strategy has been to sort of perceive them as they wanted to be perceived, which was as fundamentally good people who wouldn't demolish things, even though, you know, they had a kind of strategy as well that in order to progress, you have to break things, you know, you have to sort of move fast and break things, that sort of Zuckerberg kind of phrase. But I think, you know, as we see now with the rise of governments and political movements in the West, which are far from in line with the ethics that we might hope would be part of this, if you allocate that kind of power, you already have, you know, the apparatus for extremely invidious, oppressive government. So then we're just literally we're hoping that someone doesn't come in who wants to use it in the way that you know china's evidently using it so i think that's and if you you think of something like alabama where you've got a near total ban on abortion and you think what sort of you know if you have this surveillance tech available how's that going to be applied to doctors who are violating that for humanitarian compassionate grounds medical grounds you know these are really evident questions already i think but in your book your answer seems to be that going offline. I mean, kind of in your book, it's like there's the online, which becomes, you know, it's a dystopian novel, which becomes completely, you know, totalitarian, tech totalitarian. And the only way out seems to be just to kind of run for the woods. Well, actually, I thought that the resistance, the proposition and opposition are the same. I was thinking that because I kept talking to the kind of off the record people, you know, the sort of, you know, the people who, you know, they'd worked on building kind of, you know, like the Snowden model, you've been absolutely in the system. And then what you know about the system is so horrifying that you, you polarise your view, but you still have that kind of... You have to have that level of tech expertise, in a sense, to resist at the level that he resisted. And I, so I thought the resistance as such would be... Yes, some people might recede altogether, but others actually... It's that question of... You know, it's almost the same people are going to propose and oppose because it's now at this esoteric level and we've all been kind of kept out of it deliberately. There's this constant mantra, you don't understand. You know, we, you can't possibly understand, it's too complex. 
And at one level, you know, that's deliberate attempt to kind of remove us all from the debate. But at another level, there is this kind of incredible tech nutter kind of aspect to it that I think, you know, means that it, that's required the sort of, you know, I had hackers all over my book and, you know, so I thought that was something that might, you know, of course that's what's happened already. Yeah, so yeah, you, have, you have kind of dis- people disrupting the whole thing and subverting well, like Chris the whole Wiley, time. You know, yeah. you have Chris Wiley, who Shoshana Zubov says Chris Wiley is the prodigal son of surveillance capitalism because he was completely immersed in it. He created the, you know, the Cambridge Analytica tech, the whole programme, but then he was appalled by what happened as a result. And I think those figures are really interesting. They're part of our contemporary ambivalence. I think they're very powerful, I think. I was struck by what, um, well, you, you were quoting um, Caro, but um, I do wonder whether if we turn to elections and the role of digital campaigning and, and how you can have free and fair elections in, in the digital age, I do wonder whether where, what we're seeing is, is the absence of truth or whether it is more the absence of shame. They've come, haven't they? Ha- they've happened at the same time. I mean, they've come together, haven't they? Uh, this was very much one of the big themes of my first book. We saw that kind of emerge in Russia. This, you know, the Soviets still went through this kind of simulacrum of respectability, of factual language. Um, I think in, in this book I had this sort of incident when uh, Reagan, I think it's '87 or something, has a has a bilateral with with Gorbachev. And he tells them off for a very famous kind of Soviet disinformation campaign that alleged that the CIA had created AIDS as a weapon. And Reagan sort of brought this up with Gorbachev, saying this is scandalous, this is actually a danger to you know, health campaigns in, in, all across the world. And, and Gorbachev acted outraged, like, how dare you say that the great objective scientific um, USSR would tell a lie? So they went, they still impersonated the language of factuality. And in my book, I think about this a lot. Like, what's changed between that and, and Putin? He just doesn't care if he's caught lying. You know, he's fine with it. You know, he shrugs. If anything, it's an expression of power. But, but there's no kind of ritual of trying to imitate factuality among the whole of the kind of Kremlin elites. And obviously, you have the parallel situation in, with the American president. Um, and I think that, that is, is very sort of tied to the, the logic of the Cold War, which was two Enlightenment ideologies fighting out over who had the better version of the truth. Um, they were both using evidence to prove that their future was better. So they're both you know, part of that, that paradigm. And, and what's happened since then is kind of all versions of a rational future have sort of crumbled um, for a whole plethora of reasons. And, and you have both the rise of nostalgia, you know, no future narratives anywhere, and, and the disappearance of factuality is important because factuality was only important while you were trying to prove that you were getting to a future. But at the same time, this shame thing. Um, so I think that might be part of it. There's also something that's happening with shame. I can't quite put my own finger on it, but, but uh, I was talking to an American journalist, Ezra Klein, who I thought put it very well. It's like, as we pushed ourselves forward on social media, as we merged more and more and more, shame f- fell away. Shame meant having a, a hinterland, you know, somewhere back behind you that was hidden that you could be covering up. So the more we kind of emerged and became completely mediatized, that hinterland escaped. And what, I mean, there's nothing to be shamed of. I mean, like this, 
this, this, this great paradox, paradox with Trump. I mean, even if Putin does have a PP tape, Trump would be fine with that. I mean, yeah, okay. I, I pissed on a bed, you know, and I liked it. Um, it's complicated, though, because we hear all these, you know, all this discourse about takedown culture and, and call-out culture and the fact that you've got this, I mean, that the Internet is essentially just a giant library, a huge archive of any horrendous thing you've ever said or done or immature moment in your life that's brought up. But it just doesn't seem to stick anymore, or it seems to stick indiscriminately. It, it doesn't seem to apply to certain people. Why does it... Is it, is it about the populist frame because they're sort of positioning themselves as having all these sorts of enemies in, these, in this conspiratorial framework, or is it something else? But, I mean, there's certainly a, a difference between um, uh, right, left, and, and liberal center. Um, I mean, I think you know, when, we, when, you, when you looked at the Canadian election um, and the main... One of the main narratives of the Canadian election was was the Trudeau photographs, the the unearthing of the Trudeau photographs of him uh, blacking up when he was smaller, and and, and that caused. I mean, it didn't, didn't he didn't lose the election. He he he, uh, well, he got a minority um, uh, government, but uh, but it was it was it was shameful, and he apologised and he tried to you know uh, reassert his progressive credentials. But as Peter says, I think I don't think either on the further on the right or further on the left, I don't think you'd have had the same reaction. I think you've had a very different, a much more, um, either you play the man, not the ball, so you say, who's making these accusations and why are they making them and what motivations have they got, um, or you do the, the shamelessness and, uh, and move on. Um, so I don't think, I think, I think it's peculiar to particular politics and time um, and, and, and politicians. And I, I suppose some of that is also our changing moral codes. I mean, think we're constantly in this position where it seems, you know, five years ago, ten years ago, if a politician had come out with this scandal, they would have absolutely resigned tomorrow. You know, there's this sense that everything's become very nebulous. But also that's part of their appeal, I'd say, of someone like Trump. Um, and Putin and Duterte in the Philippines and many more. They're essentially carnivalesque figures. I mean, they are there to do the outrageous. It's part of these outrageous language, um, the kind of also the obsession with kind of jokes about private parts, uh, all the taboo things, you know, and that's, that's kind of the linguistic and sort of moral equivalent of their rebellion against the political order, you know. That. So, so in a way, the more outrageous and the less morals they have becomes becomes, you know, that, that's part of their greater appeal, I'd say. Um, there's, there's a huge pleasure in, like, sticking the big finger up to the facts. You know, facts kind of oppressive and, you know, they reflect the glum reality that we're all going to die. So there's something very liberating about that. Um, and, you know, the appeal of the troll is very important. So this, it's, it's not that they've lost shame. It's actually, that's probably part of the appeal, is, is uh, that they're kind of basking in this kind of carnival of, of, of immorality, I suppose. And that's so the, Sorry, Karen. Well, no, it was just, it was just that that's the, the thing that... So, so um, from studying 4chan, which is, which is a pretty unpleasant thing to do, um, and funny. 8chan... I mean, no, no, I didn't say that, but you know what I mean. Well, but no, so, but it's the, that dark, dark, dark humour. Very, very, very dark. But the thing that... I mean, trying to search for some sort of ideological thread or consistency, um, which is very difficult, because, because particularly, not, not least because they endlessly, endlessly trying to you know, undermine any sense of cohesion or, or, or consistency. Um, but the one thread that comes throughout 
is the, oh, sorry, two is, is this is this you know freedom of speech fundamentalism and saying you know, it's better if you can say something which is which is offensive and outrageous, um, and the other is the hypocrisy of liberals. So those are the two things which are consistent threads. Otherwise, it's, it's you know, chaos and mayhem. But um, but so 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 to Peter's thing, I mean, I think it is. It is a lot of that, a lot of nod- nodding to that particular audience and to that particular proclivity to say, this is being transgressive, this is sticking two fingers up to them. Yeah, and there's a thing about it. So with the Bad Boys of Brexit, that book by Aaron Banks, which was ghostwritten mm-hmm. by Isabel Oakeshott, and that, I think, is, is, again, what you're both saying as well about these political campaigns where <coughs> the, the offensive remark produces a reaction which firstly does nothing to dispel those who believe in the remark you know they're not persuaded by the reaction secondly it creates a further life for the original remark because the reaction you know furthers its presence online so you can't really lose once you absolutely abnegate responsibility to the truth to honesty to facts and I think then and I was wondering about both of you what this does to non-fiction Obviously, with novels, you know, novels are made up, they're non-factual, they're fake news in a sense. Um, But, you know, when you're trying actually to present the truth and you have these major authorities saying there's no truth, you know, everything's fake, so therefore we're immune from facts. What do you do if you're actually almost trying in a, you know, in a sort of way that still maintains an element of shame and, you know, an ethical framework? What do you do? How do you persuade when, you know, the very fact you're trying to abide by these former rules is going to disadvantage you. And I know you write about this a lot. Um, that's going to be the next book. Um, but but um, I well, think we there's a huge... Yeah, no, there's a How huge... How do you have realism? You know, where does realism go? No, no, no. I mean, uh, in, in this book, and, and generally my reading, I've been going back to the late Soviet period and the early 1990s in Russia. So because I, I find so many of our crises here... Uh, including the ones you just mentioned about sort of shame and, and the loss of factuality in discourse, were already playing out in Russia uh, during that period, sort of the very late 80s and the, and the early 1990s, because they already had a kind of all their old world and norms disappeared, and the new ones that were meant to emerge collapsed as well with sort of and, disastrous reforms. And we've just yeah. been in Ukraine doing yeah. focus groups where you have a sort of then a kind of dystopic future of, mm. if, if that's where they were then and where they are now where we could be going. Well, I, I, yes, I personally find Ukraine quite inspirational, but we can get into that a, a little bit later. But, but um, no, no, but, but, but this question of realism, how do you describe reality when the ground has kind of disappeared, uh, when consensus on reality has disappeared, but also at the same time where every kind of speech is now part of propaganda? Mm. Um, I mean, this idea that even sort of the diary, the stuff you say on social media, which is a very personal form, again, the idea of a hinterland, a, it's now out there, and B, it's now then used against you to, to propagandize and to manipulate you. Um, how can you talk about anything anymore without it immediately being sort of a part of some sort of language or speech that's already been manipulated somehow? And that's what they were, you know, that's what, what sort of a lot of conceptual artists especially were battling with in the late Soviet Union. What do you do? How do you find yourself in a world where the regime has occupied every type of language? Um, and one of the ways they did it was kind of, you know, they're also looking for the self. How does the Soviet, late Soviet person find themselves? Uh, and they do it kind of by colliding different realities. So Kabakov and all these great kind of Moscow conceptual artists uh, of that period, they'll kind of like take, you know, they're doing essentially, I suppose you could call it collage, but, but they're taking different types of, of Soviet discourse and colliding oh. it and placing it at strange places. And reality and the self was meant to emerge in, in, in the gaps. 
Uh, and that's what I try to do in my book as well. It's a kind of, it's, it's a pastiche of styles very much on purpose. I do memoir, then I do political analysis, then I do a bit of academic stuff, then I do a bit of travelogue. Uh, and the idea is by colliding the different genres, reality will kind of emerge uh, in, in the cracks. Um, but I don't know, that's kind of a desperate tactic. Turning a little bit to solutions, and then we'll, we'll go out to um, the audience. Uh, we can't discuss any of these topics, I do not think, without addressing the biggest elephant in the room, which is the BBC. So what <laughs> shall we do? <laughs> They're always there. They're um, the omnipresent BBC. So we've obviously had the Ofcom report recent, that's been recently published that sort of, you know, so it's a sort of semi-optimistic picture of where things stand now. Um, but there are obviously some quite significant challenges ahead for the BBC. It is really failing to land with the younger generations. Obviously, again, coming back to in the situation in Ukraine, I mean, one thing we always talk about there is, is this absence of a shared sense of reality, and the BBC's been so critical in shaping that. Um, what role can the BBC and should the BBC be playing in the solution to all of these myriad issues? Martin. Well, well first of all, thank, thank goodness for the BBC. I mean, I mean we do... We are incredibly fortunate, I think, in this country to have um, uh, uh, to have the BBC and to have and to have a mixed media model more generally. Um, having said that, I um, I've been sort of worried about BBC for a while, mainly because you know if I think back to, to, to you know the 1990s, even the early noughties, you know, the degree to which the BBC actually, particularly the 80s, with the, remember the BBC computer and the BBC, <laughs> uh, perhaps not the um, that there was a. It was, <laughs> It was fantastic. I think that was just you. It was just me. Okay, I'm <laughs> now revealing my my, my, my early years. Um, uh, the BBC was threaded into into people's lives. It was threaded throughout people's lives, and it really was um, uh, not just through the, the the news or the drama or the programmes. I mean, through through lots and lots of other ways um, too. And what's happened in the last twenty years is that actually we've seen these other. Uh, 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 Call them media giants, call them tech giants. We've, we've seen these other media beer moths thread themselves into people's lives. I mean, I'd be curious to know uh, how many people in the audience have, have gone a day without using, um, you know, the, the, the services of one of five companies all on the west coast of America. Um, uh, and uh, and yet, actually, I think probably quite a few people could think of days where they've gone without the services of the BBC. Um, so, I mean, I think the problem the BBC now has is that it's, it's finding itself a ghettoized into being just, you know, we produce good news and good content, and they do, they absolutely do, but then be reliant for its distribution and for, 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 for people actually getting its content on these very same platforms that are threaded throughout our lives. So I think it's becoming more and more, I suppose, fragile, and that, and that really worries me. Yeah, I've been, I've been reading Lord Reith's autobiography very slowly. Um, I actually had it from the LSE library for almost a year. Please, no one else asked for it. <laughs> I mean, because I'll get a little note saying, please bring it back. But it's, it's huge. Um, this is being recorded, please. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, I renew it. I renew it. I'm not like stealing books, you know. Like, you don't want to mess the library services here. Um, but um, so Lord Reith is the guy who founded the BBC. And it's fascinating reading about the fights he's having, I, I suppose it's in the 1920s, about the need to create the BBC and how similar it is to our debates now. He's basically saying our shared reality is breaking down because of polarized media, because of, kind of our newspapers. Uh, this new technology has arrived. The totalitarian forces are already taking advantage of it. We're being left behind. 
And, you know, he, he speaks, he writes rather wonderfully in a way that, which is both very romantic and very ironic uh, about the need to create a national conversation where every sparrow in our discourse will be heard. And very, very conscious, you know, he's the father of a, he's the son of a priest, of a, of a, of a Scottish vicar, and, and, and very aware that he's creating kind of a broad church and a, and a, and a, and a sort of like a, a common green for, for society. But if he, I keep on asking, what would Reith do if he was around now? And I don't think he'd be thinking about broadcast. I think he would be thinking about public oversight and control of the algorithms. That's what he'd be saying. Um, BBC does broadcast the way it does broadcast. We can go into why it's having some problems. I actually don't think it's their fault. I think there's something's changed in the culture. But that's where the fight is now. And that's why the, you know, the proposals to start regulating the tech companies are so important. It's the algorithms themselves that have to start becoming more BBC spirited. So when you, to give you a stupid, you know, an easy one, so when you type in, I don't know, take a non-controversial topic like Syria or Trump in YouTube, uh, you would get, you know, a nice mix of material that's, you know, quite high quality and so on and so forth. Getting the balance between that and, you know, freedom of expression is, is very hard. It's not going to be easy. But that's where the big fight is. That's where the battle is. I mean, I know I, I, I actually went and read the, the government white paper on online harms, which I fear might be scrapped for terrible reasons. But um, there's like a casual line in there somewhere. Like, oh, if the algorithms are pushing people towards extremism, then they should be changed. Like, oh, wow. I mean, that's just so many things you've just told us might happen. But again, it's very defensive. You know, it's basically saying, look, look, if YouTube is creating is showing you only extremist content, then you know, that should be twigged. I, I think we have to, to start thinking about it positively. What's the kind of positive um, AI, essentially? Uh, but imbued with that, with that BBC spirit um, of diversity, of debate, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that's where, the, that's where the fight is. And the BBC, I don't think, is even in that fight. Um, so you know, they're, kind of, they're kind of fighting a slightly different battle. It's a big question, though. Again, it's this question of bias and non-bias. So if you're, you know, if you say, we don't care about truth, we don't care about bias, we're just going to say it how we think it, how we feel it, the sort of Trump philosophy of reality, then you get yourself out of all the trouble that the BBC has, because it's, try it's trying to maintain this objective mode. And so then, of course, you can instantaneously be slapped down for any perceived bias. Mm -hmm. Of course, because you know, that's back to your hypocrisy point, that that's what people really go for all the time. But nobody is ever free of bias, as you're but saying. Nothing is ever free of bias. And I mean, I don't really know the BBC, but I used to work as an editor at The Guardian for a while. And, um, and actually, that sort of... You know, it's really interesting where you had, we had a, a physical trolling by the sun when I worked at The Guardian. Um, the sun was attacking The Guardian for writing dull articles. Free, you know, these kind of dull articles trying you to be... Physical. Yeah, I was going to say, what do you mean by physical trolling? Well, I'll explain. And um, so the, the sun had been doing this campaign, you know, saying The Guardian was so dreary, you know, there was no fun in the articles because, you know, it was trying to maintain these standards in journalism. And um, so they sent round, uh, you know, an open-topped bus of sun lovelies, I suppose their phrase would be, um, to the Guardian to cheer the journalists up as they sat, you know, typing out their dreary articles. And, you know, inevitably this, there was a big commotion and, you know, some people in the Guardian offices on Farringdon Road when it was went to the windows to see what was going on. And I remember, you know, more senior people rushing around saying, get away from the windows, obviously. <laughs> the sort of journalists kind of hanging out of the windows, you know, observing this. But, you know, that was the kind of fault line was, you know, if you're, you know, this notion that's dreary and uninteresting, and, but of course it's incredibly important and actually not dreary at all, depending on your vantage point. And that's again the problem with the web debate, as we've been discussing. You know, if, if the main thing is to be 
attention-catching, ostensibly sort of instantaneously, shamelessly apparent. That has nothing to mm. do with debate. Debate, standards in journalism, truth. But, you know, it's a completely different thing. So these older, you know, kind of notions of journalism instantaneously look adrift in this environment, I think. We did, we did, a, we did a study. At, um, I'm going to shamelessly start plugging my, the, the, our little research in, in, initiative now um, after having plugged my book. Um, we did a study at Arena working with Corriere della Sera, uh, tracking how they write about migration. Uh, and thinking, are there ways to write about migration, which is a really polarizing issue uh, in Italy, that didn't just look at likes and shares, but looks at, you know, are the articles enhancing trust? Are they enhancing a better quality discussion? And so on and so, and so forth. And, and we found kind of wonky metrics, you might think about that. But, like, the guys at Corriere were really honest. Like, look, we are wedded to the ad tech system. The ad tech system um, uh, sort of rewards likes and shares. If Salvini, who's kind of the Trump of Italy, uh, tells a massive clang or says something outrageous, purposefully outrageous, often racist, that gets lots of likes and shares. Um, the whole kind of economy and the ad tech economy rewards a Trump-like personality, uh, which has nothing to do with the values that you're talking about. So we've now kind of hardwired um, this kind of uh, uh, this kind of you know self-scandalizing discourse. Um, which means two things. Either we go inside and rip up the way the internet has been designed and say no likes and shares aren't <coughs> going to be the main measure of you know, your ad revenue, or we massively support media that isn't looking for that, that isn't just looking for likes and shares. Um, but it has to be en in masse. Um, uh, again, decision, you know, talk about crux moments, and uh, I think that's, that's what has to happen. But I think part of the problem that you've, 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 you've mentioned that word, ad tech, which always sets me off because... <laughs> I mean, my increasing view has become that ad tech is, is like the rotten core at the heart of the digital information economy, that actually the ad tech model is, is so, um, is so <laughs> diabolical uh, that one has to almost restructure it from, from source. And the problem we have right now is that actually much of the debate is around, well, can we maybe, I don't know, take some, some skim some off the ad tech and then we can use it to fund news, we can use it to fund other things, which of course would consolidate the whole model that has been the cause of so much of our problems in the first place. Um, but, but I don't underestimate how difficult, now that we have hardwired it in to the whole net, how difficult it is to take apart that system, which is, which is, which is so, so damaging. But what would happen if there was a law that was passed? I mean, this is a hypothetical question. A law that was passed saying it was no longer permissible to profit from the sale of personal information data, as it's called. I mean, I just, I wonder, you know, could this be, this would be, of course, the way to end that entire economy. And so if that, that was outlawed, it was literally outlawed. Um, again, to quote Zubov, actually, she says, like the slave trade was just stopped. And so many vested interests in the slave trade, so many people, you know, making a fortune, but evidently, completely morally absolutely unacceptable so you get to a point not to equate the two again but to use an example from legislation from history you know you sort of think what would happen what would we all think to go back to the bbc it does always seem that so many of the problems it's facing trying to move into the 21st century really just mirroring the issues of governance and advanced liberal democracy anyway and increasingly diverse societies. So uh, we've got time for some questions. So we're going to go to the audience now. I believe we have two <coughs> mics, three mics. So we've got one up the top, two down yes. here. 
will take a couple at a time. Um, if you can please just wait for the microphone before you start speaking, introduce yourself and any relevant affiliation, um, and please try and keep them brief and question-oriented. Brilliant. Okay, so we'll kick off. We'll take one from each sphere. So we've got um, someone here in the checked shirt and uh, down in the blue shirt here. And the front row here with your hand up here. So we'll go one, two, three. Hi. Um, hi, I'm Izzy. I'm a student here at LSE. Um, going back to kind of the tech being used in things like advertising, political advertising, insurance, it seems that they're not making those things work fundamentally differently, but essentially making them more effective. So, you know, for example, like insurance, um, health insurance has always asked, you know, your age, your gender, etc. things that they then create a risk profile on. It's just now the data is better. So is it that the tech is actually highlighting something that's fundamentally wrong with the way those things work rather than the tech being bad? Or if it really is the tech, what's the relevant difference between how it's working now and how it was before? Interesting. Okay. Uh, Donald Davidson, um, in Russia, isn't, it, isn't the online world a, a very good thing? Because this means that t today's distance can reach out to you know, millions of ordinary Russians. Uh, and, and because it's interesting to notice, in China, of course, they've got the internet under fill under control. But, but, but interesting enough, in, in Putin's Russia, it's, uh, the, the online world is free for, for Navalny, etc., to, to, to reach out to millions of ordinary Russians. So it's, it's, it's a very good thing. Brilliant. And right here. Hi, Connor Clark. Um, the conversation seemed to start off in the vein of a uh, certain scepticism about institutions playing a big role in combating this problem. So we're all a bit scared of the Ministry of Truth scenario. But then the conversation towards the end is shifting more towards making algorithms epistemically virtuous, passing legislation against ad tech. And you don't have to deceive to manipulate. So I'm wondering how each of the panel envisions the balance between um, the power question and maybe unjust exercise of power versus fixing the problem. Okay, brilliant. So we've got three really quite diverse questions there about is tech itself the problem or is it just highlighting failings and, and uh, in existing services and so on? Um, let's start with this one. Martin. Uh, so yes, it's a really good question, and it's a question that I think um, uh, there is there are aspects of it where it's a question of scale, it's a question of speed, it's a question of process. Uh, if we take something like ad tech, uh, I think one of the issues with so, so, so a few issues that I think are, are different about ad tech. Um, uh, one of which is that it's um, it's so it, it is so big. Um, I think it takes its scale to to um, a degree that we've never ever seen before. So it is unprecedented in that sense. I mean, 2.7 billion active users on on Facebook. Um, uh, Google has you know, seven services with over a billion users, um, and and integrated to to their systems for for, the, for that proportion of the population, which is which is enormous. But uh, because because it's at such a scale. Um, and it is so complex, and it is, the ad tech world is so complex, I've met, I think, about half a dozen people who actually get how it works. I mean, it is, it is um, uh, and in that sense, so opaque, partly because of its complexity. It's essentially almost anarchic. So whereas in the past you would be, um, uh, you, you could pretty much define where you were going to advertise and how you, you know, think about, you know, the types of places that you like to, um, 
we, as we've learned over the last couple of years, um, huge numbers of advertisers don't, have no idea where their ads are serving and, and in fact, happen to be uh, funding extremism, uh, funding sites that they would you know, never agree with, funding hyperpartisan news, like all, all this sort of stuff. So, so it's essentially an anarchic system. Um, it, it also um, systematically diverts money away <laughs> from um, uh, more authoritative, high-end sites um, to uh, cheaper ones. And the reason it does that is because it doesn't really care. Whereas in the past, the media was important for a number of things, including the association of your brand with, with, with the media. Um, the way ad tech works is the advertiser just wants to get to you. Um, if they can get to you cheaper when you go to that blog rather than when you were on the Times or the Guardian or the Telegraph website, then Google will wait till you get to that, to that site rather than the first site. So it, it, and, and you can choose to do that. You minimize cost per click, and you just, you just, send, um, uh, people, you just get to the person via another route. Um, and, then, and then the third thing um, is, that, which is, again, comes, it comes back to this kind of question of, of tracking and um, Shoshana Zuboff, is that it is incredibly reliant on constant and ever more intrusive tracking. You know, the, way, the, the cell to the advertiser is, we can reach this person, and by this person we mean literally this person, anytime, any place, anywhere, on any device. And, uh, and that relies on them, and that includes now increasingly offline as well, because they want to be able to attribute whether your sale in the shop down the road came from the ad that was served to you on your mobile. Um, so so the, the, that um, reliance on ever more intrusive tracking is, is uh, genuinely different from the way in which advertising used to work in the old world. I'll, I'll leave some of the other questions. But okay. Russia, is tech and net positive? So, yeah, I'm going to try to do one of these slalom from one question to another, if I can. Um, the Russia issue is very, very interesting. Um, so you're quite right. Um, the Kremlin didn't pay much attention to the Internet for a long time. They thought, I think they were working off the, they didn't really understand it, firstly. And secondly, um, they may have been working off the assumption of like, oh, let the liberals say whatever they like online. It's not real power. And then you have the huge protest movement, which people have now forgotten, but was massive in 2011, 2012, that Putin must have seen as a, as a, as a very disturbing kind of like uh, um, disruption, um, which, was complete, which was really like the liberal online space pouring out onto the streets. Um, and it's very interesting if you look at sort of like uh, uh, the Russian, it was more the blogosphere then, uh, at that period, it's incredibly... Um, coherent, there's high what computer scientists call capillarity. People are talking to each other, they're having this very intense discussion between liberals and nationalists. And the Kremlin does several things to, to, to fight this situation, only part of which are kind of old school censorship. Um, they're already starting to do it in 2010 actually. Uh, there's a great report by Citizen Lab saying, Citizen Lab are sort of probably the premier um, sort of research unit um, that, that looks at the developments of, sort of manipulation online. And they're sort of saying, we're seeing something new in the Russian internet, uh, not an uh, attempt to constrict the space, but to flood it. Yeah, so that's probably when the first troll farms are being experimented with. Uh, and they, they say this might be the future of censorship, and it's a different form of censorship. But they've, they've, done, a, they've done a bunch of stuff, really, to, to tame the space and make it less good, I suppose. Um, they have uh, introduced regulation uh, and legislation around extremist speech, uh, where basically the government decides whatever they think is extremist on, on any given day. There aren't that many arrests, but there's kind of symbolic <laughs> arrests. And they can be for tiny things like sharing an article about Ukraine. And there'll be a symbolic arrest, again, just to intimidate people and give them the sense that, they're, that they're, you know, they could get in trouble. 
secondly, they, um, uh, um, they started storing vast amounts of data, um, so which makes sort of Snowden look like sort of child's play. So, you know, all, all your data is now accessible by, by, by the security services. Um, and then those are kind of the technical and regulatory things, and then there's the troll farms, there's the flooding of the zone with so much disinformation that people can't tell uh, can't tell the truth from the not truth anymore to sort of erode trust and to fracture and to polarize. So if in 2010 you have this sort of one ball of Russian in- political speech on the internet, now it's fractured into a, you know, a myriad mini conversations. Uh, so it's a different form of censorship. You know, is it worse or better than the Soviet system? I mean, probably better. There is more freedom, but but it's different. Um, in a way, it's more resilient and adaptable. I always compare uh, sort of this new generation of sort of autocrats to Terminator 2 compared to Terminator 1. So you know, the Soviets were like Terminator 1, like very stiff. You'll, you'll watch the Terminator movies, I see. Um, and then Terminator 2 you know, is constantly transforming and liquid. Uh, and then, weirdly, that might make them more resilient because they can keep on adapting. Um, so that's the Russia thing. And they're slaling them into the regulation bit. Um, I think we can still recover the principles of 1989 and freedom of expression in this new environment. I think we live in a new form of censorship where um, we don't understand how the information environment around us is being shaped. Yeah? We don't understand if we're in Russia or, some, or here, actually, uh, if something is you know, a genuine person online or a campaign organized by, you know, by, by Putin or Dominic Cummings. Uh, not that I'm equating the two. Um, Cummings is much more evil. But um, uh, we don't understand why algorithms show us one thing and not another. We don't understand which of our data is being used. So if we go from that point, yeah, giving the individual, the citizen, the right to understand how the information around them is being shaped, then I think we're still within a freedom of expression logic. It's the freedom to receive information where we haven't slid into kind of like trying to control things from the top. Um, and I think that'll be okay. I think we can move from that logic. Always come back to the rights of, of the person online. Uh, I think then we'll be safe. But you're quite right. I think we did start right saying, going, okay, is the remedy going to be worse than the disease? Uh, and that is something we have to be very, very careful of. Joanna, with, yeah. with whom should power lie? Well, that, and that's exactly the question. So even if we decided to have the virtuous algorithm, you know, the algorithm, and there are these arguments, the sort of Sunstein sailor arguments about, you know, the, the good nudge, the societally beneficial nudge. But still, you're, who is the person who decides what's good, what's best for everyone? You know, if I, if I say to you, there's this massive house with loads of rooms, but you're only allowed in one room, and you're only allowed in another room, and you're only allowed in that room, and I've decided who gets to go in which room. You know, I've taken quite a lot of power, and I say it's for, it's for your own good and for the good of everyone here that you, know, you, you stick to the room you're given. That's, you know, that's a massive decision that I make. So I think the question, as Peter's saying, of who makes that decision and how apparent is it, how apparent is their motive for the decision? Who are they accountable to when they, when they take that power? And I think in terms of... Um, it's a very interesting question about efficiency and effectivity. And, and I think... So the, the text here, you know, it's present in the world. And... I think it's a big question of when you have information, do you combine it into a, a pattern? Again, you create integrated patterns of people from all their information. Again, who's doing that? Or do you adopt a kind of Estonian system where all the information is in discrete, both ETE and EET kind of 
pockets, you know, and you keep your, you know, your health information, your political voting preference, your social life. All this information is out there, of course, but it's, it, no one can look at all of it in an integrated whole. So no one gets that Cambridge Analytica absolute psychological profile of you that then they can use, for example, when you're at your most low, you're feeling terrible, they then send you the advert, you know, for a radical populist party that's going to destroy society. You know, that's when you get that advert. That kind of really, really directed and really quite, um, as we've seen, powerful form of manoeuvre, I think, online. So I think those are really, really interesting, important questions. But, it, but isn't the first step, before we get to the, like, who holds the power, because we can think of many ways of, of constructing that, is opening up the black box. Because the first thing, at the moment we don't know, at the moment Google has the power, we have no idea how they're doing it. So when Donald Trump sort of says, as he, as he is already saying, that the 2020 election is going to be rigged because Google pushes liberal news up and conservative down, we don't know. It sounds mad, but we don't know. So as long as that is in the dark, then we can't, as a society, we're just going to lose that minimal trust you need for democracy to happen. And actually, in that kind of darkness, you start to look for strongmen to guide you through this murky world that you can't understand. I mean, we're like Taliban on Prospero's Island, sort of like surrounded by these information ghouls and, and, and weird sprites, not understanding who's behind them. So um, well, let's start with that. Let's break open the black box. Then you're quite right. The next thing is then how do we create public oversight of algorithms that we all feel we're invested in. And there's lots of ideas around that already. Heidi Twarek, who's a brilliant uh, academic at the University of British Columbia, has written up a whole kind of you know, idea for sort of public social media councils. I mean, we can think for a long time about how we get to that level of trust. What is that body that does then actually sort of does more of the overseeing? But let's just start with breaking it open. Let's just start with the transparency, which is a nonpartisan thing. We can all agree with that. Even the, you know, our ideological enemies at King's College can agree with that. Uh, you know, and once we have that, then we can start moving towards a discussion of how do we create, um, you know, oversight systems that we're happy with. Here is where I jump in with the institutional divide. Because <laughs> uh, I'm yes, but. I mean, I've just, I, I've just, uh, I spent, I spent ten years running an NGO which is promoting uh, transparency, and absolutely, of course, transparency is important. But, but it's too often, it's, it's, it's seen as kind of an end point. It's not seen as a kind of like as a way in which to start to move towards something. Um, and it's also, I think, often too easy to talk about transparency. I mean, if we think about uh, political advertising. Um, so transparency uh, gets you to a certain place. We've now got the Facebook political ad archive. Um, but if, if a campaign, as Brad Pascalis was doing in 2016, is, is putting out 50 to 100,000 ads a day, um, uh, and that's not just one campaign, if you've got multiple campaigns doing that, um, then you, you, you know, the, the issue of it's not an issue of transparency, it's an issue of opacity by complexity. You, know, you, you have a completely different problem you have to deal with. And equally, as we've learned with even the Facebook ad archive, you can see the ad, but if you can't see who's paying for it, and, or if you, you know, go and look for it and it's a shell company, again, it's just, it's, you just... You just you dig and you dig and you keep getting to point, points where you just don't know. Uh, yeah, an archive is just pants, basically. And that's the problem. <laughs> I know you can try to use it. But, yeah, sorry. We're going to press yeah. pause for one second because we are rapidly running out of time. And I just want to take a handful more questions. So we'll go here in this back row. Uh, yep, yep. And uh, yes, right down the back as well. At the bottom here. And then one minute responses. All right. Please. I'm really good at those. Oh yeah. <laughs> hi, my name. Hi, hi, my name is Lexus. I'm a student here also at LSE. Um, so my question is that 
our economic system is based on the assumption that a rational, informed con consumer knows best. And our political system is also rests on the assumption that a rational, informed voter always knows best. But if we don't even know which facts we can believe, and if we don't, um, or if there are algorithms that can predict us so well that they can find exactly the right moment to seduce us and to convince us, do those two assumptions, can, or can those ever hold again? Brilliant. Okay, and down the back. Hi, my name is Jessica Underwood. Uh, I, I'm actually an American. I've been living in the UK for 10 years now, and I uh, am trying to get off Facebook, but find it very difficult because it's the thing that connects me to my brother in Colorado, my best friend in Oklahoma, my mother when she's traveling to Portland. And I guess there's an aspect of, it, of all of this that these things that are very human are the things that we love so much about it. And I guess, is there a way for us... To, because everything is sort of framed in this marketized system, perhaps we need to think about other state models. It's not just China and Russia, but we have state models that have provided us with the BBC and with the Postal Service. And should we be looking to the state to help us with some of these problems? Brilliant. Okay, so political education, which was already in dire straits, let's be honest, uh, before the digital age, how do we navigate informed consent uh, in the digital age, um, and also what role should the state be playing? So we've literally got a handful of minutes left, so let's just go one-minute responses, wrapping up to either or both. Martin, we'll start with you. One-minute responses. Uh, both fantastic questions. Um, uh, I uh, essentially agree with you. I think, I think there, were, there are certain founding myths of democracy, and we always kind of knew they were myths, but actually um, they're kind of being found out, and I think that's really um, frightening. Uh, and actually, um, we haven't talked about this. I mean, I, I, I love, love both these books, but I mean, Peter's book uh, has some, I mean, <laughs> I, I know, and more optimistically, but I, I was kind of, some of the chapters really threw me, I mean, in, in terms of the, the, the degree to, of epistemic crisis uh, that we're in. Um, there's an amazing one on the Donbass, and uh, the degree to which um, information has become the point of action, I think you say, rather than the, um, the action itself. Um, uh, and yes, I completely agree. I think we're being incredibly uninventive. I think there's, there's huge numbers of things. I mean, Peter's talked about um, the BBC in the 1920s, which was a remarkable intervention um, uh, in, in the market at that time. And I don't see people talking about similar, uh, with, with similar ambition about, about the types of civic interventions. I mean, why? We, we've just assumed that we're going to rely for our public sphere on these enormous tech giants. Um, why? Why do we assume that? Why do we think that they're going to, of course they're going to, there's going to be lots and lots of problems and lots of flaws with the way in which they, that the democracy works if we rely on them and their commercial models um, for our public sphere. Thank you. Joanne? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, that's exactly the dilemma that if you, we don't know ourselves entirely, you know, we're always susceptible to these impulses that we can't entirely fathom, but we have to, in some way, in order to commit ourselves and engage in society, believe that we have some kind of volition and some sort of comprehension and some process by which we can direct ourselves. And if we lose that, and I think a lot of... If you were going to create a regime to make people give up, you would 
effectively do this. You'd say, you never know yourself, you can't exercise any free will in the world. You do that, and then people just sort of think, well, there's, n- there's no point even attempting. So it's so important, it's such an important debate, and I think to, to frame the debate is vital to encourage the debate. Um, and I'd love to say more about it, but I've got to stay within a minute. Um, but in a way, every single novel, every single work of philosophy, every single work of science is about the individual apprehending reality and trying to comprehend it. And that's what we all do every day. So it's so fundamental. And to abandon that quest is in a way to abandon the aspect of being human, I think. Um, on the, um, the other very good question, exactly, this really, it really irks me when people say, if you don't like Facebook, just get off it. It's your problem. I think it's outrageous. It's a bit like if the roads were a complete mess and every time you went, you almost sort of crashed your car and then people would say, well, just stay in your house. What's your problem? Or, you know, with my hypothetical Royal Mail scandal, you know, which, uh, you know, I don't want to malign the Royal Mail, but the idea, well, if you're so upset about it, don't post a letter. You know, I think that whole ethos, you know, is really outrageous. Of course they should take responsibility. There should be, you know, state and corporation, sort of cooperation to create a service that isn't massively exploitative so that you can stay in touch with your family. Absolutely, I agree. Brilliant. Peter, bring us home. Yeah, well, um, you, you talked about sort of ra- economic theory and rational choice. I mean, I, I know nothing about economics, um, but... Um, in, 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 in the bit, in sort of in the media landscape that I come from, we, we had a very similar myth about the marketplace of ideas, which was, you know, this idea that in a, uh, you know, the better information ideas would eventually win out through some sort of rational choice theory, uh, and, that, and that's just proved to be utter nonsense. Um, and I don't know whether it's the state. I mean, the BBC isn't the state; it's kind of public, but. Um, without a doubt, um, what we do need is huge levels of, of, of intervention. Um, I mean, there are methodologies to do it. That's what we do at Arena. We essentially look at polarization in the media space in different countries and think about, okay, how do you create content that smooths polarization, that builds a common dialogue and a common debate? It is technically possible. It just won't make any money. Um, but there are spaces in our society which, you know, we've kind of worked out that... that the market is not the best model for them, um, you know, whether it's ballet or, or, or you know, our public conversation. So uh, I, don't, I, just, I think that's the only way forward, and it has to be done at scale. The methodologies are there. There's lots of people, not just us, doing very interesting experiments about how you might curate uh, the digital space differently to have a better democracy, but it needs massive investment. Thank you very much. So these three, I'm going to see if I can hold them all at once. <laughs> can I help you? <laughs> Look at this. Look at this amazing selection here. Um, these three magnificent Sounds books. Sounds like shopping. <laughs> yeah. Look like, at this watch. It's on CVS, obviously. Yeah, yeah. CVC. Um, these three books are magnificent, and they are all for sale outside those doors. Um, as Peter mentioned, we've got some really exciting projects coming up at Arena as well, looking at places like Ukraine and Hungary and so on. So um, please do follow us on Twitter as well. And now that all that's left to do is for me to thank you for being such a wonderful audience and for you to thank our wonderful speakers in the YouTube world.